Welcome to the Surge Strength Podcast, powered by Ritter Sports Performance. This podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better, reducing injuries, and swimming faster. Let's join your host, Chris Ritter. Welcome back to the Surge Strength Podcast, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Have a great show for you this episode. We are going to start off inside the Surge Strength Academy. And remember, that's where we house our dryland certification, our free 101 courses, and coming soon, the graduate level, which is for those that are SSDC diving even deeper into dryland concepts, techniques, program reviews, all of that good stuff. So if you're not already registered, you can register for free. Just go to our website, surge-strength.com, enroll in the Academy for free, start checking out the Dryland 101 courses. Today's lesson is being pulled from our Surge Strength Dryland certification curriculum, and it's about the phases of programming and the different phases that you need to make sure you are going through cyclically in your season. Now, depending on what type of athletes, their experience, a couple other variables is going to determine how often you're changing those phases. But if you look at your dryland program and you are not going through very distinctive multiple phases in a season, you are leaving a lot on the table when it comes to the results. So uh, we'll listen to my lesson on phases of programming in the Inside Surge Strength Academy segment. And on the Dryland Talk segment, we have Caitlin Haycock, and she is the strength and conditioning coach for the men's and women's swimming team at the University of Michigan. And this talk was a while back. It was actually part of a uh, Dryland Swim Strength Summit that we did a while ago. And Caitlin has been for a number of years now, just an outstanding collegiate strength and conditioning coach. So I really value her expertise and it was a great chat that we had there. If you missed the updates earlier, just a real quick announcement, because today, the day this podcast is dropping is when it's really relevant. Today, when the podcast airs uh, at midnight, we are closing enrollment to become Surge Strength Dryland certified. It's not forever closing. It'll be later in the year we open. We're not really sure when, but what we're trying to do is not only upgrade some stuff on the back end, and we just kind of need some time where no one's enrolling for us to do that, but also to help make sure the coaches that are currently enrolled are getting all the resources they need to go through and become certified. So if that is on your mind, make sure you enroll before the deadline so you don't have to wait. Hope to see you guys in the Surge Strength Academy. Inside the Surge Strength Academy. Phases of programming is what I'm going to be covering in this lesson. Now there's an accompanying PDF that you're going to want to make sure you print out and it'll also allow you to zoom as well because I'm guessing you're probably not going to be able to read all of the writing in here, but I still wanted to put it on a slide for you. So when it comes to periodization and different phases that you could come in through, there's many more than I have listed here. So this is not an exhaustive list. What this is, is me through the years trying to make things simpler and paring it down and trying to pare it down to the simplest phases I could. And this is really what I've come up with. And so if you want to look through it, I, I've put all the variables in terms of load, rest, tempo, and all that stuff. I'm not going to go over each of those individually, but from this, I've pared it down even more and that these are the phases that you're typically going to see in terms of the triangle, right? The strength, power, and endurance. But from this, I even pared down more into what phases I'm typically 
rotating athletes through. So I don't really use all five of these phases. I really just focus on three, strength, strength, power, and power. And now what we can break these down into is terms of the emphasis and the requirements. And again, I'm not going to read through these. Uh, you can print it out and go over it. But with the function and unloading, obviously that's more warm up or if we want kind of an unload flush out session on dryland. So typically it's going to be the strength, strength, power and power. And in terms of reps for strength, that's six reps or less. So make sure coaches, you wrap your mind around that. If your athletes are able to do more than six reps, they're not really working strength anymore. And actually, I want to go back to this slide here. If you look down and I made sure I put this so that you would understand and hopefully steer clear, because, again, we want to build a swimmer's body. Right. And that includes not gaining unnecessary mass. What happens is if you go over six reps and typically you go, you know, six, eight, ten reps, you're right in the middle of hypertrophy land in terms of what adaptation you're telling the body to go to. So you need to keep it under six reps if you're trying to work on strength. If you're trying to work on endurance, then it needs to be greater than 12. But typically, I feel like a lot of default is, oh, eight, 10, 12 reps. That's right in hypertrophy land, and we don't necessarily want that. So I put that in the endurance phase there, the hypertrophy one, because with strength, we're really talking about maximal strength, and that's what I'm terming the strength here. So it needs to be six reps or less. Power is pretty similar, too, in terms of five reps or less. I will sometimes do up to 10 reps for a like band exercise, something that's going to be super fast where I can still get those 10 reps in in about six seconds or less. So I will sometimes program more than five reps. But again, this is going to feel weird probably to some of you to be programming this few of reps. I'm guessing that you're usually programming more and you're in the hypertrophy land, maybe unknowingly a lot of the time. And that's okay. But now you know that you can change that with your programming. So the whole point is if an athlete can do more than six reps, you need to increase the load somehow. Maybe you need to increase the angle if it's a body weight exercise. If it's pull-ups, maybe they need to be doing weighted pull-ups if they can already do six. Um, with with pull-ups, though, in particular, sometimes I will have them do more double reps for a little bit of time to prove to me that they're good before then we start doing something like weighted pull-ups. But that's a rare example. The biggest thing I want you to get out of is these three phases, these are the ones I rotate through and just understanding those reps that for strength and power, it's very few reps most of the time. It's a lot more on sets and the intensity, the load, the volume in terms of what we're doing. So this is the phases of programming. I would focus on these three. We'll get in more in depth in the coming lessons on these. Dryland Talk. So excited to have Caitlin Haycock on. And Caitlin has been on the podcast before, but it was talking more, a little bit more general how we train swimmers. And today she's breaking down, I would think maybe a little bit scarier of a subject for some coaches or swimmers, Caitlin. And you're going to say, hey, this is what you actually need to do for Olympic weightlifting for swimming performance. And you, of course, work with the women's and men's swimming teams over at University of Michigan. So thanks for joining us and diving into this topic. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, like you said, I think it is a little bit scary for some coaches to uh, think about incorporating the Olympic lifts into their programs. But uh, as far as bang for your buck, you're just going to get the most out of them. Um, and so they're just really practical to implement as long as you know you've you've got some good coaching behind it. 
Yeah, and I think that's the the main thing that you said there, good coaching. And again, we're going to have coaches and swimmers from club level, college level, and everywhere in between attending this. So obviously you're in the college setting, so you're going to be talking from that perspective. So you're not coming on here saying, hey, get the 12-year-olds out and let's start snatching and all that stuff. Let's not have anybody misunderstand that. But like Caitlin said, it's all about the coaching, and you're going to break that down for us. So let's get started. All right. So um, this is a, a program I developed a little bit or a presentation I developed um, back as part of my graduate studies when I was working on my GA here at Michigan. Um, and so I think that a lot of the times it's the, the, the improvements you can see from weightlifting um, in terms of sport performance are, are pretty uh, underestimated. Mm. Um, so I'm really coming from the University of Michigan, this is the background that we work with. And uh, I think that as far as, again, like I said, bang for your buck, you just get quite a bit from these movements. And so I try to incorporate them early on um, and start teaching them the basics. So we'll get going Um, just quickly. I'm going to run through this. Uh, It originally was, I think, like a 30 or 45 minute presentation. We're doing the quick and dirty. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we're just going to go ahead. We're going to look at the two Olympic movements, the clean um, and the snatch. I didn't include the Technically, it's a clean and jerk, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, we don't really do overhead movements here. And I know that they're not quite as popular with with uh, other sport or with some teams. So I just left the jerk component out of it. Um, and then we're going to look at how they relate to the track start from the blocks, the flip turn and the uh, the dolphin kick. Yeah. Um, so, again, the purpose, we just want to look at the the Olympic movements and how they're going to help benefit performance in the water. Um, again, that's that's what we're after. We're performance-based. We want to make sure that what we're doing in the weight room is going to translate into the water. Um, so, kind of quick background. So, there's kinetics and then also kinematics. So, kinetics are going to be the study of the forces where kinematics, we're looking at the motions of the bodies. Um, so, a little bit different. Um, and, and you'll kind of see as we go through the presentation, we'll have both listed in each one. Hmm. Um, so kinetics, we're looking at vertical ground reaction force, power, which is going to be your force times velocity, um, your rate of force development. That's how quickly you can you can apply force. Um, and then impulse, which, again, is kind of your change in momentum. Um, so going from still to a start um, or going from like in a flip turn, you're changing directions there. Yeah. And it may be um, obvious, 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 Caitlin, but can you explain why we care about like vertical ground reaction force? Like, you know, the force you can put into the ground in a sport like swimming when you're in the water. Yeah, exactly. So um, the thing that I think a lot of can come be overlooked a little bit, specifically, um, especially with me being in a college setting, um, we're looking a lot at short course. Mm. Um, and so we have more turns. And then you also, the start plays a, a larger role in it. So um, we want to make sure, again, that, that ground reaction force, being able to impart force onto either the wall or the block to, to work on minimizing those times um, so that we can get as much as we can out of those. Um, you have the opportunity, and it's an advantage, I think, um, to have more walls for that short course because you get 15 meters off every wall. Now, obviously, yeah. we don't... 15 meters off every wall but um if you can then you're only swimming 10 um and so you know you travel faster underwater as well so if we can get as much out of those as possible um we're really gonna gonna help our time in the races um and so again then like the power component force times velocity Mm -hmm. um the faster you can impart that force then the faster you're going to be either off the wall or off the start and again that just goes back to to overall decreased time for the race um, and then as far as kinematics go, we're just looking at displacement. So again, like the flight time. So after you're, uh, after you jump off the block, the time from 
the block in until entry in the water mm. and then the glide as well under under the water um velocity and we kind of looked at angular a little bit so that, again it's looking at a flip turn um and then time so time that you spend on the block time that you spend on the wall um the time that you're in flight uh and then also time during the glide and then amplitude and frequency will come in with the with the dolphin kick so how large the kick is um and then how fast the kick is as well mm. very cool um, so we'll just kind of go with the clean. So the clean technically is uh, bringing the barbell from the floor to the shoulder in one movement. Um, the Because I don't have the, the jerk component in here, technically it's the floor to overhead in two where the snatch is going to be floor to overhead in one movement. Mm. Um, and so kind of those kinetic and kinematic uh, elements are going to be power and impulse, the rate of force development, uh, and the ground reaction force. Those are our main ones that we're looking at with this movement. Um, and then I work a lot with derivatives for this when I'm programming. Um, and so you can go from the floor, uh, and that's going to be, as you see in the picture here, starting at the floor. And when they compete, they'll always start at the floor. Mm. Um, and I use a lot of the derivatives from the hang. So that's anywhere above the floor. So knee, mid, thigh, power. Um, the research shows that the most power is generated from the mid thigh position. So when we get into power, uh, the power phases, so when we're pretty close to meets and, and heading into that taper, um, I'll keep the team at mid thigh just because we were looking for the greatest power generation. And when you're talking um, about derivatives, Caitlin, just to make sure everybody's following you, that you're basically just saying these are different variations of how we do it. So we won't always pull from the floor necessarily. You may start yep. that pull from higher up. And like you were saying, there, there's a lot of power benefit from that mid thigh area. Exactly. Yep. So um, derivatives just mean uh, kind of breaking the movement down. I, for an example, I'll always start with derivatives. So we start with the power position, um, which if you kind of look at the picture, power position is going to be that fourth or fifth frame or in between more the fifth frame, the, the last one on the top row. Um, and so right there, that's where your peak power is going to be uh, generated. Mm -hmm. So again, that's why they call it power position. Um, and so I will always start an athlete there because if we don't have the ability to go through that position properly, um, it doesn't matter if we start from mid thigh because it's still going to limit our power production overall. Um, so I always begin with derivatives with, uh, with all the athletes. Um, and then also you're just making the movement simpler and breaking it down. It's like, you're not going to throw a beginning swimmer in there and say, you know, like, all right, I want you to start with a stroke rate of 1.1 ready, set, go, you know? Um, so uh, so we break it down for them. Um, and then as far as the poles go, uh, I like using poles as well because they can focus on the, the leg drive uh, component of it mm. um, and not have to worry about the turnover. Again, it's just working on breaking that movement down. So um, we'll start, get them to coordinate the lower body before we throw in the arms. Um, and so that's where the derivatives become extremely helpful. And and can we back up even just a little bit more? So yeah. what would you say are the prerequisites needed to even start doing something like this? Uh, so to even start doing something like this, I think, first of all, from the coaching side, having a thorough understanding of the movements um, and then also understanding these derivatives. Mm. Um, and so because you need to be able to explain to your athlete, you know, multiple ways, every athlete will react to different cues. Um, and so being able to, the greater the understanding you have, the, the easier it will be to coach the athletes on it. Um, and then as far as the athletes concerned, um, jumping, um, basic jumping mechanics, because you're going to end up pushing and extending through. So hip, knee and ankle. Um, and then also understanding um, 
like a hip hinge is going to be crucial as well as you start mm. to progress downward to the floor. Um, the athlete being able to perform a proper hip hinge. Um, so that means note or understanding that keeping a, a neutral spine from the hip joint up as you're able to push the, the hips back a little bit. A lot of the times you'll see athletes where they'll um, they'll do what they think is a hip hinge, but essentially <laughs> they're either defending at the waist yeah. and, and you see this, this awful, like I call it turtle backing. Yeah. Number, um, either that, or you'll see where their back becomes like concave and mm. they've got this huge arch and essentially they're just hanging on their lumbar spine, which again is not good at all. Um, and you just put them into extension, which is going to be a lot of stress on that low back. So understanding being able to brace through that midsection, um, while moving at the hip joint. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So you, you don't definitely want that curve back, but the other end, you don't want to overcorrect and be super extended because then, like you said, you're you're essentially going to stress the same area. So being able to have that hip mobility and essentially on the hamstrings too, the, the mobility in the hamstrings to be able to get down in that hinge position and still keep that uh, neutral spine position and be engaged in your core while you're doing all of that. Exactly, exactly. And I think... Um, a lot of swimmers, you'll you'll see some are hypermobile and they'll have no issues with it. But then you get your few. Um, a lot of the times it ends up being flyers, but um, where they've got poor hamstring mobility. And so then you just see this like that, that turtle back again. And so um, getting them to, to kind of understand where they're at um, and have an understanding of, of um, body awareness essentially is going to be, you know, crucial as well, which sometimes for the swimmers is a lot easier in the water because they've got that fluid around them to give them that those mm -hmm. kinesthetic views. And, and once they get on land, it's, uh, can be a bit of a struggle by it, but we've had some success. <laughs> so it's good. No, that's awesome. Yeah. We keep going here, Caitlin. This is awesome. All right. So, um, so again, physical requirements, rapid generation of force. So that's the, the power element. Um, and there's also going to be a strength element. So you have to be able to generate the force, which goes back to the strength. Um, and so, uh, we also are looking at, uh, there's quite a bit of contraction for the lats and the teres major, which again is that posterior or backside aspect of the shoulders. Um, you know, obviously you talk, we talk about lats all the time with swimmers and how it's, you know, the main mover for these, uh, for these athletes. And so I think it's overlooked a lot how much lat activation is involved with the clean and even with the, the snatch as well. Mm. Um, you're holding it in a position. And so when I work with the athletes, I try to communicate that to them and say, Hey, this is where it's going to be beneficial, especially, you know, like if you're doing freestyle and you come in on a catch, you're going to have to activate that lat and hold it in a position as you grab that water. If you let down, then your shoulder drops, your elbow drops. And so, uh, and then you're just not holding the same amount of water and your efficiency declines. And so I think that's an overlooked area because all in a lot of times they'll think about the, the Olympic movements is, oh, it's all leg based mm. and it is. And that's the majority of the movement, but there's also um, a benefit there with the lat activation. Um, and then just looking at power. So just kind of, so, so there's an understanding in numbers one horsepower. So horsepower seemed to be the best way to, to kind of quantify this and make it relatable um, is about 746 Watts. The second pull, which is going to be that, that portion from the knee up to the hip, uh, where it's the most explosive um top end athletes for olympic weightlifting generate up to 3700 watts which we're looking about at about five horsepower which is quite <laughs> a bit of force now obviously our, our collegiate athletes for swimming aren't, aren't generating near that um but even still 
if our top end is, is generating five, we're at least going to generate the one, no problem. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite a bit of power there. Um, so we'll kind of keep moving. So going into the snatch, um, again, similar kine uh, kinetics and kinematics, work power, impulse, ground reaction force. Um, and then also here is going to be peak force, peak force and peak velocity. The snatch is the most explosive movement that you'll be able to perform. Um, now, we'll typically only use snatch pulls with the team. Um, there have been a few cases where I've worked with uh, post-collegiate athletes, so some of the professional swimmers here. Um, so, like, an example with Sean Fletcher. He swam here at Michigan. Um, we started incorporating um, power snatch with him after he became a professional swimmer. Um, it's a much more complex movement. So, again, uh, kind of like you said at the beginning, grabbing a 12-year-old swimmer um, and throwing them right in. Hey, here you go. Let's snatch today. Um, isn't the best idea, but I think pulls are, are extremely beneficial for them. Um, but we saw with with Sean, we saw quite a bit of improvement um, as far as his peak force and peak velocity uh, with the snatch. Um, it's going from floor to overhead in one movement. Um, and so, again, that's you've got to work pretty darn hard in order to, to be successful with that. Um, and again, so like I said, I use mainly a derivative. I'll do snatch pulls and I'll do them from the floor. Um, and then also from the hang kind of depending on which group I'm working with. Um, and so you can kind of see in this, this photo here, the snatch grip is going to be wider. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, that just works again to hold that lap position. And if you kind of look, um, I like it a lot with flyers because they're, um, as their arms come around, um, they're going to be in those wider positions. Um, and not saying that they pull obviously from the wider yeah. position, that's not ideal, but, um, just making them comfortable in those positions on land is, has been in my experience helpful for those guys. Oh, that's, that's a great um, point. Uh, so, and then just kind of looking at the requirements again, generation of muscular power, just like the clean, um, and then quick turnover as well, following that second pull. If I do end up working with an athlete that's doing the full lift, um, and then one of the, the other things too with the snatch is mobility. So in order to perform an overhead squat, that requires a ton of mobility, specifically through the thoracic spine, mm -hmm. which is going to be crucial um, for any swimmer. Um, again, you've got your hypermobile athletes, you know, like I don't think Michael Phelps ever had an issue with thoracic mobility. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a number in the collegiate setting that do um, – do struggle to perform an overhead squat and it doesn't have to be with any weight. Um, yeah. I've, I've been also working with our club level program here, club Wolverine and using a PVC pipe and mm -hmm. getting that mobility, um, is, has been a really crucial component of their training. Yeah. Just taking um, a PVC pipe, getting up to a wall, <laughs> how close can you get to a wall <laughs> overhead squat? I mean, you know, that could be yeah. a, a huge challenge in and of itself. If you want to challenge like a 12 year old or, or even the pro summers, I mean, that could be a challenge in and of itself, just doing some, Something as simple as that, that's no weight required. Exactly. And, and we're just kind of looking for that, that mobility component. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I have seen grown men sweat from doing a <laughs> overhead squat. So uh, there, there's quite a bit of benefit there. Um, but as far as kind of looking at that, that power element, so the propulsion of the, bar, the barbell occurs in about a second for this. Mm. Um, which, again, that's extremely fast. And that's, again, looking at that, that power position. Um, and so back in 2012, they looked at the, the female world champion and um, did a, an analysis of a few of them. 
um, the top level women and their first pull, which is going to be from the floor up to that knee position um, was 643 watts. So again, just under one horsepower, but that second pull uh, tripled pretty mm. much um, to almost two and a half horsepower. So when you get a female and they're looking at like the 53 kilo, 58 kilo weight class, so we're talking anywhere from 125 to 135, 140 pound female to be generating two and a half horsepower is pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so just, here's a couple more pictures of just, Oh, just, just the sequences. Movement. Yeah, exactly. And these are, um, so the top picture is just a pull. So that's one of the derivatives I use mm -hmm. pretty often with the, with the swimmers. Um, again, looking at that back position, generating, um, coordinated movement from, from the floor through the knees, hips and ankles. Um, and then, so kind of getting into now how it relates to the yeah. swim world um again i've listed the kinetics and kinematics uh on the side there but essentially a start the one of these studies um found it contributes up to 30 percent of a total time for a 50 meter sprint so that's i mean you're looking at a third of the race off of what like reaction times they want to be like point you know like point three right so mm -hmm. um it's that's quite a bit that's that can be pretty influential um and so and when you look at races you they win by hundredths of a second so you know 30 percent of that you know you can make quite a quite a big impact on your race if you're able to improve that start time um and then also maximizing takeoff velocity so when you do hit the water and you're heading into that glide the faster you are hitting hitting the water um the longer you'll be able to to kind of ride out that glide a little bit um, and then minimizing block time as well. <clears throat> um, the, the less time you spend on the block, the more time <laughs> you're in the air and in the water and you're going to finish that race a little bit faster. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> so, uh, as far as physical requirements, the arms aid in the pretensing of the leg extensors, um, and just kind of increasing the load on the leg muscle. Um, and so, and then also muscular leg power for that quick push off. Um, so you'll see the load, um, the arms kind of help in the collegiate setting for a lot of the, the races that they go to, they've got the handles on the side of the blocks, um, international competitions, obviously they don't. Um, but the, the handles can actually help just a little bit more. Um, so being able to hold that position again, we're looking a little bit at that lat activation, same sort of setup as a position from the floor on the clean or the snatch being able to tense and have that isometric hold of the lat, um, same thing is going to be beneficial on the block here. Um, so I have a quick video here oh, yeah. so to start. Um, Nathan and Anthony, um, it's slow motion. <laughs> but so here they most will load a little bit back and then they've got that pull to get their legs going. Um, and then obviously into the water, that quick explosive nature and this is where a lot of the times like to work on starts i'll incorporate um the pulls from the floor uh with the athletes um it's also been really beneficial for the backstrokers because they kind of start mm. in that tight position and have to extend really quickly yeah. so they've found some benefit there um and then moving to the flip turn um especially in the collegiate setting we've got the the 25 yard races so the short course um and then even like internationally like world cup stuff with the 25 meter uh you have more walls and so taking full advantage of those walls by developing those those elements of you know like reaction um force generation those things um so here we've got just kind of like a multi-stage photo oh, very cool. um, 
And so again, you want to coming into the wall as you flip, you want to have a really fast generation of force. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the more force you can impart on the wall, the greater the distance off the wall. So if you can maximize those 15 meters, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to be ahead of the game there. Um, so again, rapid extension of the lower limbs. Um, that's from one of the swim studies I looked at. So it sounds pretty familiar to the clean from the floor is rapid extension of the lower yeah, yeah. body. <laughs> and, and just seeing that, that picture, the still picture on the wall there, uh, I could see how, especially if, if you're doing a little bit higher pull, you know, that mid thigh area, like that's almost exactly that position that they're going to be in when they go for the pull. Exactly. Exactly. It's just a different plane. Um, and so I think that like, that's one of the reasons I actually really liked this photo, minus the fact that her, her feet are a little uneven. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, it is, that's, that's essentially like a mid pull uh, mm. or mid thigh pull position. Um, and so being able to, to relate this to the athletes and also to the swim coaches as well, because I think a lot of the times they're like, well, we don't have any ground in the, in the water, you know, how's this going to be beneficial? Yeah. And I know flip turns and starts are, you know, overall a small, small portion of the race, but as we kind of saw earlier, it can be a very influential component. Um, and if we can, can maximize these, then I think we're setting up the athletes to be successful in a race. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and then here's just a, another quick video um of a turn of the turn so you kind of see them they'll pull into the wall so again this is kind of that impulse to change the momentum so they need to change directions and then here right at that motion they're pushing off explosively um and getting into a little more crouched position which is why i like to work eventually um from the floor with the athletes um so you just kind of see the the relationship between the two movements um and then kind of moving into the dolphin kick a little bit here so um again we're looking at average velocity the kick frequency and kick amplitude so again the frequency is how fast they're kicking and the amplitude is going to be the displace the vertical displacement or horizontal sorry horizontal displacement um and then i've got the strewel number there um which again is just going to be more of like an oscillatory it's, it has to do with fluid mechanics and everything um, kind of goes back to, you don't want to have, you know, you want to have enough displacement of the legs, but you don't want to have too much because then you're getting into levels of inefficiency there. Um, but you want to be able to produce propulsion um, in reverse direction quickly. So as we go in and we're going in the kick, um, you know, the frequency is going to be dictated by how quickly they can move their legs from extension to flexion and back again. Um, and then also they're using this to accelerate water, right? So, um, and then, I mean, you kind of, we get into a bunch of fluid mechanics with the dolphin kick. Um, so I didn't go as in depth here, um, but you still need to have a, a level of um, speed when you're doing the flexion and extension, which again, goes back to our, our lifting movements, the pulls and the um, completing the full lifts. You, I don't think a lot of people realize, but when you watch high level lifters, their speed is going to come from the change of direction. Mm. So extending as fast as they can, but then also that rapid flexion, um, which again is, is both of those are elements in the water. Kind of like when we came in on the wall, you're coming in and you're, you're gliding in. So you've got that quick flexion into the wall and the quick extension off. Um, so we want to really look at both both ends of the spectrum there. Um, and then even with the, the dolphin kick going 
um, you're extending that leg in, um, the, you know, like at the end of the kick there and then, but you need to flex again fast. So it's the quick flexion and extension. Yeah. And, and that's a hard thing to train in the water, much less out of the water is that kind of rhythm and, and getting that down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, so kind of here you can see with this video, uh, the flexion and extension, um, again, there's the extend and then quick flex. And again, I think a lot of the times the, the elements of the hamstring are overlooked a little bit because that quick flexion there is going to be mm. a result partially of the hamstring. Um, and so when we're doing any sort of pull or any sort of power clean, we're loading the hamstring, um, and setting it up to, you know, like that, um, the, the elastic reaction there is loading that hamstring to come back through and fire that and using that posterior chain. I think a lot of the times the, the posterior chain can be overlooked for swim. Um, and where if we train it, we can really get that little extra bit out of the kick or out of the starter turn. Um, so just kind of summing things up quickly here, how is weightlifting going to be beneficial for swimmers? The, the improved rate of force development. Um, again, that's going to be mainly off your starts and your walls, but the faster you can you know, apply a force, the faster you're going to be able to get off that blocker, get off the wall and then get to the finish. <laughs> um, and then increasing the ability to generate power as well. So again, starts and walls. So the faster the athlete can generate that power and apply the force into either the wall or the block, um, the faster they're going to race. Um, ability to generate a greater impulse again. So the, from a start, you know, you're starting from a standstill because we looked just at track, you know, like not taking relay starts into account, but um, you're starting from zero and then you're having to essentially move your body, whatever your body weight may be to as fast as possible. So you've got that quick time there. So um, same thing with the lift. Um, and this kind of goes back to like starting them at that power position. We're starting from a still motion um, and even like any position we're starting from still if, or sorry, floor or power position, they're starting from zero movement. And then you have to generate that force. So for them, it's whatever the weight of the barbell is on the block, it's your body weight. Um, and so the, the more efficiently you're able to do that, the faster your starts and walls are going to be. Um, and then increasing explosive strength again, starts walls. And then that's where the dolphin kick kind of comes in as well is that quick little extension of the, of the leg there. Um, and then overall strength, uh, just to be more, more propulsive. Um, and again, there's like, there's some debate as far as, you know, um, you're the, the faster you move in the water, the greater the resistance, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, if you can develop a strength and be able to have more propulsion, then you'll kind of be, you won't necessarily be able to overcome because I'm, it, becomes more, but less it's going to impact you in your race. Mm. Um, and then coordinated or organized power production. I think this is a big one with swimmers, um, specifically on land for the most part, they're all pretty well coordinated in the water. And it's again, because they've got that fluid around them, they've got that kinesthetic awareness, but being able, uh, to have them do that on land as well, getting them coordinated on land. Um, and this goes back to the, you know, the podcast we originally did, the more athletic an individual and the more coordinated they can be, the better they're going to be at, at whatever sport they choose. So, um, getting them to be able to, uh, to be coordinated on land and produce power on land will, uh, theoretically transfer to the water. And, you know, um, so that's where we, we kind of like going back to the, the bang for the buck, um, mm -hmm. 
coordinating them on land through these movements um, is hopefully gonna, gonna help them in the water with that coordination and power production. Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your dry land IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.